of you guys have seen, uh, or an advertisement at least, of the recent CBS sitcom? Actually, how many of you have seen it? Living Biblically, have you guys seen that on CBS? There's a, there's a new sitcom, uh, I have not seen it yet, called Living Biblically. I was curious, so I did a bit of research, started to dig in where this came from. It actually comes from a book that was written a few years ago. And in this book, a journalist decided that he was going to try to live for an entire year according to all the commands of the Bible. Can you imagine that? So that's what he's going to try to do. He's going to try to, you know, beginning in Genesis, the whole way to Revelation, take all the commands and follow all of these mandates. Listen to the description of the book, which the show is based off of. Raised in a secular family, but increasingly interested in the relevance of faith in our modern world, A.J. Jacobs decides to dive headfirst and attempt to obey the Bible as literally as possible for a full year. He vows to follow the Ten Commandments, to be fruitful and multiply, to love his neighbor, but also to obey hundreds of the less publicized rules, to avoid wearing clothes of mixed fibers, to play a ten-string harp, and to stone adulterers. Yeah, the resulting spiritual journey is at once funny and profound, reverent and irreverent, personal and universal, and will make you see history's most influential book with new eyes. I would suggest rather than looking to a CBS sitcom show to figure out how to live biblically, we look at the Word of God. And when we ask ourselves, is there a way that we can actually live biblically? Is there a way that we actually relate to the law of God? Our sermon series, Matthew, is showing us a resounding yes. There is a way to live biblically. And our text today very much sets us up for several sermons that are going to come after that are going to very clearly show us, as Christians, how do we relate to the law? As Christians, how do we, how do we live biblically? It's not going to be with legalism. It's not going to be with hypocrisy, obviously. It cannot be that we just get rid of the law. That, that's not an option for us. I think many times we hear about the law of God and humanity in general relates to it thinking that, okay, here's the law. I have to, I have to do this to climb higher to be with God, right? Almost like it's a ladder. And then other times we mistakenly approach the law as if, we climb up that ladder of the law, obey the commandments, and then we show ourselves as better than other people, right? We, we obviously can't relate to the law that way either. Other times, humanity approaches the law and they look at this heavy burden of the law and they conclude, I don't even want to follow it. I, I don't even want to pay attention to it. I'm going to turn my back on it. And what, what Jesus does for us here in Matthew is he gives us clear guidance clear guidance in how we can live biblically. In the Sermon on the Mount, what's going to follow my verses that I have today in the following sermons is going to be a path to human flourishing. A path to human flourishing. There are going to be mentionings of issues of anger, lust, marriage, integrity, retaliation, love for our enemies, generosity with our possessions and our lives, prayer, anxiety, hypocritical judgments, loving others, 
all of these issues, the whole scope of really human existence is going to be addressed in the following chapters, in the following verses and chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important to see what Jesus is doing right here in our verses in 17 through 20. And I want to make a connection before we go right into the, into the text. Jesus is establishing himself in an authoritative way that would have been, been seen by his followers as someone like Moses. Think about Moses for a second. He went up onto Mount Sinai, he received the word from God, and then he delivered, to, delivered it to his people. In the Sermon on the Mount, what are we seeing? Jesus goes up onto a mount, he is the word of God, and he's authoritatively delivering it to a people. But this is where some concern comes in. People begin to think that Jesus is overhauling, he's dismantling all that Moses brought. People are thinking in their head, what is he doing to our religious system? What is he doing to our way of life? What is he doing to our history? And in these words, in 17 through 20, Jesus is telling his people, I am not coming to abolish what Moses brought. I am not coming to destroy or dismantle what Moses brought. I am coming to fulfill it. And that's what we want to look at this afternoon. The main overarching text, or I'm sorry, the, the main overarching idea that I want us to see tonight is, is I'm going to boil it down to this phrase and then I'm going to try, try to unpack it from the, from the text. Here's the phrase. Jesus fulfills the law so that we will display a greater righteousness. I'm going to say it again. Jesus fulfills the law so that we will display a greater righteousness. A shorter version of this is, and I'm going to mention this throughout, he fulfills it so that we display it. He fulfills it so that we display it. In verse 17, let's look at it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've, I've titled this section, King Jesus Witnesses About His Fulfillment of the Law. King Jesus Witnesses About His Fulfillment of the Law. When Jesus mentions this idea of the law and the prophets here, we've got to understand that this is just another way of referring to the Old Testament. It's not just talking about a list of rules and obligation. It's talking about this whole uh, history of the Jewish people that explained their covenant between God and themselves. Jesus is making it very clear that he is at the center of all of it. He is the fulfillment of it. And he wants to make it clear to people who have in their mind that he's coming to destroy it or dismantle it. He's not doing anything of the sort. He's coming to fulfill it. it as you read on in, in Matthew in chapter 5, it's actually almost hard to believe that they would come to this conclusion and I'm going to give you some examples. What Jesus does with the law is he, is he actually makes it a lot harder to follow in many ways. He makes it a, he makes it a lot harder. And I, and I want to show you how. Uh, I'll give you just two examples. One, the law says don't murder. We're familiar with that in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. We understand that idea. The religious leaders of the day believed that it was satisfied as long as you didn't physically murder. And Jesus takes it to a whole new level 
and he says that the true kingdom ethic that he is bringing, the true righteousness that he is bringing, means that obeying that law, you, you don't even get contempt in your heart towards another person. Do you see how he made it harder? Right? It's, a lot, it's a lot easier just to say, I'm good, I haven't murdered anybody. Check, right? It is much harder, much harder to get to the heart of what Jesus was teaching here. I'll give you a second example. He, he looks at the law uh, speaking of adultery. The religious leaders of the day believed that this was satisfied as long as you physically did not have sex with anyone but your spouse. Jesus takes it to a whole new level and he says that the true kingdom righteousness that he was bringing, the true kingdom ethic that he was bringing was one where you didn't even cultivate a hint of lust in your heart. You see how that's, that's harder, right? But people were still looking at Jesus and they were accusing him almost of diminishing or dismantling the law and the prophets. Do you see how that's kind of absurd to even think? He wasn't dismantling. He's enhancing. He's going to a whole new level. In fact, I want you to think about this for a second. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets. He's not come to abolish the law of the prophets. He, he is coming to himself be abolished. Do you understand that? The law and the prophets, they're not the thing that's going to be dismantled. Jesus himself is going to be dismantled. And they don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. In fact, what they're more concerned with is this religious structure that they have built and that they think they can get into a right relationship with God, with that religious structure. Jesus is very clear here. He's not coming to abolish the law and the prophets. I want you to see here this witness to his fulfillment of the law. In some ways, it might be hard for us to think about this and envision this, but I think, I think we probably have an idea of how he has done this. We know that he's obeyed the Old Testament commandments. If you have any familiarity with Jesus, you know that he is perfect, he is good, he's obeyed all that God has declared for us to obey. And that is true, but there's more than that at, that's at the heart of this passage here in verse 17. In fact, what it's saying when it says fulfillment this idea of it being fulfilled, it's, it's being filled full. That the law and the prophets are actually being completed or they're being filled up to the highest extent of their purposes in Jesus. Another way to think about it would be this, and we see this in the New Testament. In Hebrews, it talks about the Old Testament being a shadow, right? We, we've, we've heard that before. This Old Testament is a shadow Jesus is the real thing, right? Jesus is what it was all pointing to. I want us to see this in the Old Testament, and, and I've, I've, I've written down a few examples of this. Follow me as I go through this. Think about this. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, Jesus is coming to fulfill them. Listen, listen to these characters in the Old Testament and see how they point to Jesus. Jesus is the better Adam, bringing life instead of death. He's the true promised seed of Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations. This is one we don't think about often. Jesus is the better rock in the wilderness. Paul actually talks about this rock. Remember the rock that Moses struck? 
Jesus is the better rock. He was also struck, giving forth living water so that we will never thirst. He is the better judge, like Shamgar and Othniel and Samson. But unlike them, he saves his people completely, and he will someday execute final justice. He's the embodiment of Proverbs, right? Jesus is wisdom incarnate. He's the better Esther, put in place by God himself at a special time in history. He's the better Boaz from the tribe of Judah, the town of Bethlehem, the only redemptive hope for Ruth, brings her to be his bride, pours out his kindness on her. Jesus is the better Boaz, loving us, his church. He's the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah rebuilt the torn down wall of Jerusalem, cleansed the temple. Jesus became the very cornerstone of the true Jerusalem, his people, the church. He's the better Joseph. Joseph was deeply loved by his father. We know that. Jesus was deeply loved by his father. And unlike Joseph, who appeared to die, Jesus did die for us. He's the better Moses. Where Moses served as a faithful servant in God's house, Jesus served as the perfect son. He's the better Aaron. Jesus serves us as the great high priest who will never die. He's conquered death, and he gives us access to the Holy of Holies. He's the better Joshua. He bears the same name as Joshua, Savior. He's the true captain of our salvation. He's the better prophet, not just a temporary mouthpiece of God. He is God in the flesh. He's the better tabernacle and temple. Yes, the tabernacle and temple passed away, but he is the eternal temple. His body was torn down, but in three days he rose again to reign forever. He's the better lamb, the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And church, he's the better king. He is the better king. Not only being the long-awaited king of Israel, but the long-awaited king that every human heart longs for. Church, there is no possible way that we can think that Jesus was coming to abolish the law or the prophets. He was doing nothing of the sort. He was coming to fulfill them. It is so clear throughout the Old Testament that he was coming to fulfill them. Verse 18, uh, some confusing sections in it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. This verse is declaring to us the certainty that he will accomplish all of his work, that his fulfillment will come, come to pass. The mentioning of this uh, iota and this dot, the, he, the, the Hebrew language had you know, T crossings and I dots like ours. And Jesus is saying, even to the smallest part, he is going to not let any of it pass away. The phrase until heaven and earth pass away is kind of an odd one in there. Look at it in verse 18. Until heaven and earth pass away, uh, you know, the law will not pass away. It's an odd phrase. When you look at it in the context of Matthew, it seems to make sense. By looking at Matthew 24, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to mention it. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Again, he's kind of saying the same idea, right? 
What does he mean by heaven and earth will pass away? Most likely, the idea that Jesus is getting at in verse 18 is this idea that when he dies and resurrects, he's bringing in a whole new kingdom, right? Remember in chapter 4, we've heard this in in our sermon series already of Matthew. In chapter 4, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Remember that? In Matthew, we're going to very clearly see that his death and resurrection, it really does bring this kingdom. And Jesus is telling us that all of it will be accomplished. D.A. Carson explains it this way. I think this is a helpful quote. It should be up on the screen. There's a sense in which the whole of the law of God, though it has many functions, has amongst its primary function pointing forward to the perfection that is yet to come. Jesus is promising something here. He is declaring something to his listeners and to us here that he will bring about all that he is set about to accomplish. And there's, there is hope in this verse, and I want us to see it. I think it, it's important that we catch this. We sometimes are, are, are blatantly confronted with the reality of our lives where it doesn't look like what Jesus has promised to accomplish, it doesn't look like it's happening. It doesn't feel like it's happening. When we look at our lives, many times it feels like it's, it's coming apart at the seams. Do you know what I mean? It feels like that uh, his kingdom is not here, right? We're told that he's coming to fulfill it. We're told that the law will be accomplished but it doesn't feel like that. There is hope in this verse, church. In verse 18, there's this hope that everything will be accomplished. And it will be accomplished because he has accomplished it on the cross. He was telling his listeners there on the mount, listen, I'm going to fulfill it. It's going to happen. Heaven and earth will pass, won't pass away until this this promise is fulfilled. When we look at the world, it doesn't look like that. When we look at our own lives, it doesn't look remotely possible. But when we look to Jesus and we trust Jesus and we rely on Jesus, we, we begin to see the reality of the kingdom happening in our, life, in our lives. And really what we're seeing is when we, when we look to Jesus and we believe his promises that he really is going to establish his kingdom, that he really is going to accomplish all of the law, all that it speaks of, when we look to Jesus, what's actually happening is the kingdom is being established. His kingdom is being established. It's this slow, steady march of the kingdom that's happening in our lives. How is the kingdom happening in our lives? When he begins to deal with these issues of righteousness in us. All of a sudden, he begins to deal with these issues of anger. All of a sudden, he begins to deal with these issues of lust. All of a sudden, he begins to deal with these relational issues, whether it be retaliation or how we treat our enemies. And what Jesus is doing there is he's actually establishing the kingdom in you and through you, through us. This is amazing. This this is in verse 18 here. This hope is in verse 18. That he is accomplishing it, and he will accomplish it, and it it will be done in us. I was even thinking as we were singing, uh, Behold Our God. 
you know, this idea in Behold Our God, it says, He will reign forever, right? He will reign forever. That's part of His accomplishing it, right? Not only that, not only will Christ reign forever, but we will display that kingdom righteousness forever. That's part of His accomplishing all of the law. It's not just that he obeys everything that's in the law. It's not just that he obeys every command. He accomplishes it on our behalf. And then we display it. He deals with those things in our life. Someday, church, we will be able to say the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119. Listen to these words and think about this. Think about this. Someday this will be completely true in our lives. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong. Blessed are those, I'm sorry, uh, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. I will praise you, and here it is, listen to this, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Jesus is fulfilling the law so that we will display a greater righteousness, and he's showing us that right there in verse 18, that he will bring it about. Second point, verse 19, King Jesus warns about diminishing God's law. King Jesus warns about diminishing God's law. Or another way you could say it here is he warns about our relaxing God's law. That's how the text says it. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants us to be very careful here and he's, he's warning his listeners and he's warning us that we view the law as he viewed the law. Because he is the very fulfillment of the law, our view of the law has to be in high regard. Because in viewing the law the the way Jesus viewed the law, we're loving him. Think about all the times in the New Testament where it says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, right? Part of our loving Christ is obeying his commandments and seeing the law as he sees the law. But this brings up a question that I think we have to ask ourselves. Which laws does he have in mind? Remember the author that I mentioned at the beginning? You know, he was talking about even wearing, you know, the the fabrics of mixed fiber, right? There are all these obscure laws in the Old Testament. So which laws does Jesus have in mind when he says we better not relax them? Because we need to know that, right? Are, are we not living biblically if we don't do these certain laws about fabric and we don't do these certain laws about uh, civ- you know, the civil laws related to Israel? Is that what he's talking about? And I think we need to understand it, and this is maybe a simplistic way to picture it, but we need to understand the laws in three different categories. You have national laws or these civil laws related to Israel as a nation, as a physical nation. These laws were to set Israel apart. You have ceremonial laws that were laws related to the temple and related to the tabernacle that was before it. And these were part of the sacrificial system. And then finally, you have this set of moral laws. And we would often think of the Ten Commandments when we think of the moral laws. And I want you to, to picture it this way. 
So he says that you can't relax the least of these. What we need to do is see all of the law through Jesus. We have to see it through Jesus. So when he says, don't relax the least of these, don't skip Jesus and look back to the Old Testament. We can't, we can't do it that way. We have to look through Jesus at these laws in, in the Old Testament. And I think it's helpful when we do that because we see all of those national laws, those laws that were to set physical Israel apart from the other nations during that time period, all of those national laws were fully satisfied in Jesus. Matthew actually does this on purpose. He shows that Jesus is the true Israel. If you've, if you've thought about this before, Israel passed through the Red Sea and went to Mount Sinai, uh, and then they went into the wilderness and they were tempted by Satan. What do you see in Matthew? A really similar storyline, right? Think about the storyline in Matthew. Jesus is baptized, right? He goes out in the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. But where Israel failed in the wilderness, what did Jesus do? He succeeded, right? Jesus shows himself as the true Israel. So all of these national laws are satisfied in him. The ceremonial laws related to the temple and the tabernacle. Very clearly in Hebrews, we see those are completely satisfied in Jesus. Those were just shadows pointing to the real thing. In fact, it is very clear in the New Testament, Jesus, we're told, is the temple. He is the temple, right? So the moral laws, that leaves the moral laws. Again, we can't skip Jesus and look back at the moral laws. We have to think about the moral laws through Jesus. We almost have to use him as the filter by which we look at it all. And as we look through Jesus at the Old Testament laws, we see through Jesus and through his teaching in the New Testament these moral laws that he calls us to. And so when Jesus says here, don't relax these, right? He who relaxes even the least of these will be called least in the kingdom. He's talking about his commands and his teaching, and he even says as much later in Matthew. We cannot relax his teaching. We, can re we cannot relax what he has fulfilled and accomplished. We, we have to be reminded here, though, that just because we're not to relax them doesn't mean that they ever become, these laws, they never become the source of our righteousness. They never become the source of our righteousness. Dallas Willard says this, and I think this is a really helpful quote. He says, to be sure, law is not a source of rightness or righteousness, but it's forever the course of our righteousness. I'm going to say it again. It's not a source of our rightness or righteousness, but it's forever the course of our rightness. So when Jesus says, don't relax these, right? Or he who relaxes these will be called least in the kingdom. And then he says, he who obeys them and teaches others to do the same will be called great. Jesus is not, not pulling a bait and switch here on us. He's, he's not saying, oh, you're saved by grace, or that's what the New Testament authors say, and then, oh, gotcha, right? You, you got to follow these, though. No, Jesus is not doing that. We've, we, we have to be assured that he is constantly the source. He is always the source of a righteousness. But his law is the course or the path of our obedience. I think it's worthwhile thinking about, are there areas in our life 
where we're relaxing the demands that Jesus puts on us? Are there, are there areas in our life where we're minimizing what he calls us to do? In big areas, you can think very clearly, I think many of our minds will go here. It's even been mentioned in our Matthew series already. Culture is very much pushing hard on us to relax how we view different areas of sexuality and marriage and gender. We, we need to understand, church, that Jesus calls us not to relax that in the least. We, we cannot lessen or diminish what God calls us to. We, we must obey and teach what he commands. That's one of the big areas. But think about smaller areas. I was even thinking about this this week. Think about a command like slander, right? Uh, to not slander or to not bear false witness. How easy is it for us to bear false witness now with those devices we carry around in our pockets? The, the press of a thumb, have we just relaxed, right? In our minds, have we just relaxed the commands of God by, by maybe liking or affirming a comment about someone that we don't know if it's true or not? And, and we've... We've, we've just been guilty of bearing false witness. We must take this seriously, church. We must see the law as Christ sees the law, but never think for a second that it's our source for righteousness. But it is the course. It is the course, and we must follow that course. Finally, King Jesus weighs our heart obedience to God's law. King Jesus weighs our heart's obedience to God's law. In verse 20, and again, it can be confusing here. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like Paul, right? I, th I thought it was grace alone. Wait a second, Jesus. But he's very clear here, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a hard and weighty statement that I know offended people in Jesus' day, specifically the two groups that he mentioned, the scribes and the Pharisees. I know it was offensive to them. But I'm, I'm sure even in our minds, sometimes that's hard to hear. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Wait a second. They, they were professional law keepers. Seriously. My children's storybook Bible says that, that they thought they were super good, holy people. The scribes and the Pharisees did. They did. They, that's what they thought about themselves. They thought they had themselves covered. They had created other laws to kind of hedge their bets and make sure that, hey, we're, we've got this covered. We're not going to break God's command. And here Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed their righteousness. This is, this is kind of mind-blowing. To help us think about this, John Stott, I think, describes it well to help us think about the scribes and the Pharisees and their righteousness and, and, and the way that they were almost maniacal about pursuing this righteousness. Listen to what he says. Was not obedience to God's law the master passion of their lives? 
Listen to this. Did they not calculate that the laws contained 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions, and did they not aspire to keep them all? It's a lot of commandments and laws there. How then can Christian righteousness actually exceed Pharisaic righteousness? How can this superior Christian righteousness be made a condition of entering God's kingdom? For the Pharisees and scribes, rule-keeping was their occupation. And here Jesus tells us that our righteousness has to exceed their righteousness. This is weighty. This is, this is a bit of a burden on us. And for some of you, it might sound like a try-harder message. Maybe some of you, it's your first time walking into our church and it sounds like what's being said right now from Jesus is that you're excluded because you won't be good enough. It might sound that way. It might sound like this is, this is just another one of those religious things, right? I, I, I figured it was going to be like this. It's just another one of those religious things where you just got to just, you just got to try harder, obey more, and just, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It sounds like that at first. But what we have to understand is that Jesus wants us to see righteousness on his terms. Not the Pharisees' terms, not the scribes' terms. What Jesus is calling us to, church, is a righteousness that is deeper and that penetrates to the heart. And we are going to see that so clearly in the following sermons that come that deal with the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 and 7. This is a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees in detail, in depth, and in design. It exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees in detail, in depth, and design. How? Well, well in detail, because Jesus calls us to be righteous, our whole selves, the whole person, whole person righteousness. Uh, we're not to lessen any of Jesus' teachings. Secondly, in depth, and I mentioned it already, but I'll say, say this again, Jesus calls us to a heart righteousness. He actually changes our hearts. And then finally, in design, and this is so clear in Matthew 6, the Pharisees and scribes, their righteousness very clearly was about making themselves look good in front of other people. Very clearly. Uh, over and over it's shown that their concern was what other people thought about them. And Jesus says, no. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. It must exceed it in design in that it's actually for me and my glory, not to earn rightness with me, not to earn righteousness with me, but as a result of what I've done for you. It's an inward righteousness. It's a heart righteousness. Again, from John Stott, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than degree. It is not so much, shall we say, that the Christian succeeds in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may have only scored 230. No. Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper, being a righteousness of the heart. So church, 
Jesus is not calling his listeners and he is not calling us to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. He just isn't, right? We're, we're never going to be able to win that game and we're not even supposed to be in that game. This was prophesied in the Old Testament, this righteousness that exceeds. Jeremiah prophesied it when he said that this righteousness would come from a new birth. What is God going to do? How do we exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? We can't do it the Pharisees' way. It won't work. Jeremiah prophesied that God's actually going to change our hearts. He changes our hearts. Ezekiel prophesies this as well. Not only does God change our hearts, he takes the external law and he puts it in our hearts, on our, on our very spirits, and gives us his spirit to obey it. It's not an external reform it's an internal delight to follow God. Entrance to Christ's kingdom is for those who have a real righteousness, this inward righteousness that can only, it can only be manifested if you are born again. It can only be lived out by those whose life comes from King Jesus. As Jesus states elsewhere, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. <clears throat> Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very obvious that we cannot enter the kingdom apart from this righteousness that exceeds, but he's not telling us to try harder, he's telling us to trust him. Again, he is not encouraging us to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. We can't do that. They were going about it all wrong. I was thinking the other day, it's, it's, it's like what they were doing was taking this good thing, the law, and dumping it into their life, hoping that it would change a corrupted heart. If I, if I had a house that was full of lead pipes, and I, and I turned on the water, every time that the water came out, it would be poisoned lead water. Right? Imagine the craziness if I tried to solve that problem by dumping pure, clean water into my well, hoping that the effect would be that when I turned on the faucet, I would get clean water. It's just not going to work. Every time, I'm going to get poisoned water. The Pharisees were attempting to fix a heart problem with external resources. Heart problems, inward problems, cannot be fixed with these external resources. The law was never meant to fix our heart problem. It wasn't meant to fix our heart problem. God is the one who fixes our heart problem. Church, we have to realize that the, for the Christian, what has happened is the corroded, corrupted heart condition has been replaced. We did not fix it. We did not heal it by effort. No, it was, it was empty hands raised in need. It was faith and reliance on Christ alone. The Pharisees' problem was that they thought they didn't need anything. They thought that they had pro provided for themselves by law-keeping. We've got to realize, church, the seriousness of this statement and understand that Jesus is not calling us to try harder. He is calling us to trust him. We must have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees of scri and, and scribes as evidence of what he has done in our lives. Paul, Paul 
makes this so clear in Philippians 3.12. Listen to this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Listen to the last part here. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Did you catch that? I press on to make it my own. That's this idea of I'm, 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 I'm trying to have this exceeding righteousness, right? This righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes of Pharisees. But look why Paul is doing this. Paul is doing this because Christ Jesus has made him his own. That's why later in Matthew, Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy, his burden is light because he has made us his own. God does not stop at just justifying us. He continues to grow us in obedience. This means that those who are his are going to walk in a growing obedience to his law. It will forever be our course. So Christian, don't be discouraged in this. Let us be a people whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees because it's evidence of what Christ has done in our lives. Let us be a people who display this greater righteousness because of the reality that Jesus has fulfilled it all. All that the Old Testament was speaking of, Jesus has fulfilled it. Church, Jesus has fulfilled the law so that we will display this greater righteousness. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the living word, your son Jesus. God, I am very aware of uh, my own weakness, but I am very aware of the power of your word. Matthew 5, 17 through 20, your son clearly shows his supremacy. His fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And God, through him, you have provided us not only justification, but you have provided us a king who is bringing about a kingdom in which we will someday be able to cry out with the psalmist and be completely blameless, completely pure, completely perfect in him. God, I pray that as we pursue this righteousness, this righteousness that we're called to that's exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness, God, I pray that that would not be seen as a burden, but that we would see that as fruit that your spirit brings about in our life. God, make us a church that evidences that fruit. Help us to be a church, God, that flourishes, that shows your son's work in our lives. We trust that you will do that, and we thank you for doing that. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.